All right, everybody, welcome back to the Jay Walker Show at the request of Justin. <laughs> um, today is a real special day because, you know, history, um, I'm sitting here with former U.S. Senator Doug Jones. Thanks for coming on, sir. Hey, Jay, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So off the back, how's all this Trump stuff got you going? As I know it got you all <laughs> over the place. Yeah, you know, I've been pretty busy. Uh, a lot of media call between being a former United States attorney and former U.S. senator, yes. you get uh, a lot of different perspectives with uh, the Trump indictments. Four indictments. I mean, it's really stunning yeah. What we're seeing play out uh, right now, and it's even more stunning that uh, he seems to continue to rise in the polls, uh, at least within the Republican uh, primary. But that's, you know, that's just kind of the world we're living in today. Do Do you think he's going to jail? Well, I don't know that. You know, I, I, I am one. I've been a prosecutor. I've been a defense lawyer. So I'm always one to make sure people understand that you're innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. He's not been proven guilty yet. Yeah. Uh, the evidence is, is pretty damning if you just consider it on its face. Yeah. Um, but that's going to be up to a jury. And none of this evidence has been tested by good lawyers yet. Yeah. And it will be. So we'll see how it goes. It's, it's going to be a long road for him. I don't think he really fully appreciates how difficult a road uh, it is for any criminal defendant in this country. So can you tell me about uh, your journey into politics <laughs> and what made you decide, I want to be a U.S. senator? Well, it, it really goes way back. I mean, I've had an interest in the political process ever since I was a kid, you know, and I worked in a number of campaigns over the years when I was younger, involved in the Young Democrats uh, when I was younger. Um, And in 1979, I worked, uh, 1978, actually, I worked uh, with Senator Howell Heflin. He is a former chief justice, ran for the U.S. Senate the first time. And then I was on his staff for a year and just really caught the bug about the U.S. Senate. I just loved the institution, uh, followed it over the years, worked in his campaigns over the years, worked in other Senate campaigns, helping raise money and doing some things. And I, you know, uh, just thought at some point, maybe the time would be right that I might want to do this. And in 2017, when the special election came up, kids were either uh, out of the nest, they were in college or on their own. And it was, uh, it was time to give people a voice that I don't think it had a voice uh, in Alabama in a long time. And we were really fortunate with the way it worked, but uh, it was a great experience. Wow. So what motivated you to run for public office? You know, look, I think going back to my work with Heflin, working as an, a, as, a, as U.S. attorney, yeah. um, I really was able to see that public service can really do good things for people. That's what it's about. People forget. They, 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 politician has a bad connotation to it. Mm. And I try not to use that. Everyone that gets elected to office, everyone that gets appointed to office is a public servant. And you've and you really you got to serve the public, and it's got to be about the public's best interest, and and it can be for good, uh, not just an ego trip. As so many, I think, public officials use their offices. It's really a, it's really for good, and uh, I, I, that got instilled in me early on. Mm-hmm. And when the time ro- uh, came up, uh, we grabbed it. Wow! So during your time as senator, what were some key? Um key issues that you focus on? There were, there were a number of issues that we tried to focus on in the time that I was there. Healthcare 
was and still is a huge issue in Alabama. Alabama is one of only about 14 states now that has not expanded Medicaid. We've got well over 300,000 people in this state who cannot get health insurance. And, and they're working. I mean, you know, we've got a, a low unemployment rate and they're working, but they just don't pay and they just don't make enough to get good health care through their employer, maybe not offered, they can't afford it, or they make a little bit too much to be um, eligible for Medicaid. So that's a real problem. So we really, I was on the Health Education Labor uh, Pension Committee, known as the HELP Committee. So health care and the delivery of health care and the disparities in health care, particularly women. Yeah. We have such maternal uh, health care problems in this in this state, particularly black women have increased health care issues um, when it comes to pregnancies. So that was one thing. And I was on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, Alabama has a huge military presence yeah. uh, in this state from, you know, the Wiregrass on up to Huntsville. And um, being able to work with the Armed Services Committee, with our various armed services and the Secretary of Defense, that was a big thing to try to get more resources and more assets uh, into this state because it is a huge part of Alabama's economy. And that that's a couple of things. HBCUs, we worked in on the education yeah. space, trying to help HBCUs a lot too. Wow. So can you describe to me a challenging legislative situation? How did you find common ground with it? Well, it's not easy these days. Um, it was, it was for me, it, I came in under such unique circumstances um, that at least for the first year or two before I got in what they call in the cycle, running for re-election, um, I had a number of people on both sides of the aisle that, that would work with me on various things. We would come, you know, we had a great staff uh, uh, during my time there, and they worked with other staff to say when there was an, a, a bill that was uh, pending, when there was something going on that you wanted to work with, you know, a lot of times you will see senators um, pair up. One Republican, one Democrat. And that's what we tried to do in all of our work. And I got, uh, I was fortunate to be called by a number of my colleagues, Republican colleagues, to try to co-sponsor legislation mm -hmm. and working with them. I mean, we ended up, I think I ended up co-sponsoring, you know, two or three hundred bills. Um, now, that's not the lead co a, a lead sponsor, but a co-sponsorship. And the staff works on those. Not all of those get, uh, obviously, get into law. Yeah. Um, some w got put into uh, what they call a must-pass bill, the Appropriations Committee or the National Defense Authorization Com uh, Bill, those kind of things. Um, we had a number that did get in, but it was really, I was really fortunate that I was able to work with people on both sides of the aisle. Wow. So you, um, <laughs> you prosecuted the guys for this bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. So what was that process like? It was remarkable. Uh, to say the least. Uh, 60 years ago this year, yeah. we've got a lot of, of fascinating things happening in Birmingham, marking that anniversary, including the memorial uh, on September 15th, in which uh, the keynote speaker is Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. Wow. Yeah, it's going to be a really major, major event for Birmingham and for the church and the life of the church. Um, you know, 
Jay, I was in law school here in Birmingham in 1977, a young second-year law student, when the first of those cases, I was only nine when the bomb exploded, uh, but in 1977, Attorney General Bill Baxley prosecuted the first case, and I knew I wanted to be a trial lawyer, mm -hmm. and so I cut classes and went and watched that trial, <laughs> sat in the balcony as a you know 24-year-old kid watching that, and you could see how important that case was to the people of the city, to the, to the victims' families, in the community, never dreaming that 24 years later as United States attorney, I would have that opportunity. The case got reopened right before I became U.S. attorney, wow. but we really set our mind to trying to do everything we could. You know, back in the day, so many people felt like the FBI didn't fully pursue the case. Yeah. J. Edgar Hoover's got a really bad reputation right now. He was not pro-civil rights, but he really did put the effort in, and he put the resources in, and we built on that. You just can't always solve these cases, and the Klan really kind of clammed up, and you couldn't get all the evidence. But we set our mind to it. We were very fortunate. Things just turned out just right for us, and we had two cases, and we convicted both Tommy Blanton and Bobby Frank Cherry. Uh, both of whom died in prison uh, for the murder of those four little girls. Wow. So we see the Emmett Till story. So are we getting a, a story about that, the prosecution case? Well, you know, there's a book. I do have a book out called Bending Toward Justice, uh, the church bombing that changed the course of civil rights. Uh, I don't know whether it'll ever make it to the big screen. Um, I think you'll see more about that story this year. It's going to get a lot of publicity with Justice wow. Jackson coming for the memorial. The 60th is doing that. In fact, ABC is is uh, came down here the other day. The, the Good Morning America third hour mm -hmm. is doing a kind of a special uh, about the bombing uh, that morning, I think. So we'll see. So how did you navigate um, to, across party lines to get stuff done, to get bills passed? Up? Well, it, it, to me, it was pretty easy. Um, I, I was not one to just throw bombs. Uh, political bombs like a lot of people do. I didn't get on the floor of the Senate to just throw bombs like a lot of people do. I tried to work with everybody. Uh, I tried to find common ground. Um, it, it would take a while in some instances. For instance, I did a, um, I was one of the main co-sponsors of a, mo a money laundering revision. Wow. Um, that hadn't been done in decades. And that took literally almost the entire time I was in the Senate. Wow. Okay, to get that worked out between Republicans and Democrats and the interest. But if you work enough with somebody and you talk to people and you listen to their concerns, that's what we don't have enough of, I think, in politics today is listening. Um, and our staff did a, just a really a remarkable job working with the other members of staff, I would talk to them in committees. I would talk to them on the floor. We'd hash out our, uh, or try to hash out our differences, <laughs> you know. And in most cases, we could. It was, it, it didn't, again, it's not always under the rules of the Senate, could not make it to the Senate floor for a vote. But at least we got it to a point that at some point, a lot of what we worked on when I was in the Senate, I think will get enacted into law in one form or another. It just takes a while. Wow. So can you share with me an example of a successful bipartisan uh, effort you were a part of that oh, lessons you? Absolutely. There's a, there's a couple of them. The, uh, you know, the, the the one that I tell a lot that, that all of my, my Democratic friends give me a hard time about is um, the cold case civil rights bill. I had a bill that really pulled a lot of the FBI records and others uh, records of these cold civil rights cases, wow. like Emmett Till, unsolved cases, yeah. uh, like Emmett Till and others. 
uh, to the National Archives and appointing a commission to kind of make those public. That commission's now been appointed. It was passed. It was signed into law. The, the guy I worked with the most on that was Ted Cruz wow. from Texas. Wow. Ted, I, I had in, introduced the bill um, with some kids uh, from New Jersey who actually helped write it, and it was their idea. And Ted heard the speech on the floor, came up to me and said, I'd really like to help. We got that bill passed. The other one that I'm really very, very proud of that was a bipartisan effort with um, Senator Lamar Alexander, Republican from Tennessee, Mm -hmm. now retired. We did two things. Um, uh, He was chairman of that help education, the help committee, the health education. And one thing that we did was we had a bill to simplify the FAFSA, the federal application for student loans. We simplified that down. I mean, it was a monster to deal with, and people were just not doing it. Alabama students were losing a ton of money, and we simplified that. And he was also my co-sponsor, worked with, along with now Vice President Kamala Harris, to um, get permanent funding and increased funding for HBCUs. And I was really very, very proud of that. We've got more HBCUs historically black colleges and universities in Alabama than any state in wow. the country. That's right. People don't realize that. Got, wow. yeah, I think it's like a 14 or something wow. like that. It's amazing. Wow. And we got permanent funding uh, and increased funding every year I was in the Senate. And that is, a, especially after COVID hit, that was a lifeline for uh, HBCU. So I was very proud of the work we did with HBCUs. Do you talk to President Biden a lot? Not a lot. He's pretty busy. No. <laughs> um, you know, these days, I was fortunate enough to uh, have lunch up there with him not too long ago oh, okay. uh, at the White House, just me and him and a couple of other folks uh, down uh-huh. by the tennis courts. It was really kind of nice. but. Um, I communicate with people on his team a lot uh, about different issues going on, some with the campaign coming up. Um, So, you know, it's... um it, I've known him for 40-something years. Wow. First met him when I was in law school, and we've been friends ever since. You know, he... When I was sworn in, um, every senator has someone to escort them, uh, a former senator. And he escorted me in that day. Senator Shelby and I kind of got crosswise in our our logistics there, and Senator Shelby didn't make it back up. So I asked uh, then former Vice President Biden uh, to escort me in, and it was an incredible day. Wow. So how did you you stay connected with your constituents and ensure their voices were heard and your decisions? You know— that's another thing that I was incredibly proud of our staff. Uh, we had, we, there's five state offices. Wow. We had offices in Huntsville and Birmingham and Montgomery and Mobile. We had one that we put in Selma. There was a little office that we had down in, in Dothan. Um, and we had people manning those. And that's where the kind of the front lines for constituent services are. Um, people that would make direct contact. The folks in the staff would go out and visit with people. Mm-hmm. Um, they would get invited. We also get a lot of emails, you know, a ton of emails and letters, and we tried to answer every one of those somehow. We had a whole unit dedicated to correspondence wow. um, in in the office, and a, a lot of those were just general answers. But every now and then, it would be something that we we would do get an invitation. Yeah. I traveled the state a lot, trying to visit with people, you know, individuals, um, businesses, local governments, 
and local government officials, chambers of commerce, you name it. I was, I really traveled around a lot and I did a lot of, I did a lot of town halls. You're not seeing a lot of that happening right now, to be honest with you. I don't remember the last time, except for Terry Sewell. Terry does a lot of town halls, but I don't remember any other, uh, uh, currently, uh, anybody else doing any town halls. And we were all over the state doing town halls and invited people not just supporters. I wanted folks that had questions about what I was doing in the Senate to come and ask me these, ask me questions, talk about it, because we learned an awful lot from our constituents, not just of what they think and what they believe, but we learned about uh, you know dealing with certain issues and what was going on and what was important on the ground in Alabama. Wow. So, what leadership skills do you think are crucial for a successful senator? How did you cultivate those? I, t- to me, the most important thing that a senator can do is listen. Yeah. Um, you know, people who run for public office like to not listen. They like to talk. They like to think that they know everything. Well, I can tell you they sure as hell don't, okay? <laughs> um, and, and listening, I think, is the most important thing. And in, 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 in by li- listening has a, a component of understanding as well. You've got to go where people are and, and, and listen to them, get the facts and get the issues, but understand where they're coming from, their background, what is going on that causes them to ha- be passionate about an issue yeah. or something. And, and I think that's the most important thing because if you can do that, then you can take that back. And that makes it easier to find common ground with other senators mm. and with particularly people on the other side of the aisle. If you don't listen to folks, you're only going to be doing those things that you think are important, which may or may not be the same things that are important to your, your state or your district. Wow. So what are your thoughts on the, on the current leadership of the Senate, United States Senate, uh, Tommy Tuberville? <laughs> I, I am very disappointed in what I'm seeing right now. Senator Tuberville is, I think, embarking on one of the most un-American crusades um, by blocking military nominations. He is objecting to a policy that is, um, you know, involving uh, women and their right to travel to seek an abortion if they're assigned to a, a, a state that doesn't provide that. And the Department of Defense has a, has a policy that would allow them time off and travel expenses, not paying for any, uh, uh, any services, but just allowing time off. And he is blocking military nominations. See, a lot of people don't realize this, Jay, but generals and what they call flag officers, their promotions have to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. That's in the Constitution. And a lot of people don't really fully appreciate that. And we've got so many people, and he's blocking all of them. Usually that is done in a bipartisan way by unanimous consent, meaning everybody agrees, let these nominations go forward. And he's not allowing that. And we're getting a backlog and it is affecting national security. It's affecting morale. It's affecting our ability to both recruit and retain really good people, especially uh, women in our in our military. And it's just it's tragic what he's doing. Wow. 
So, a couple of weeks ago, he was on Fox News, well, CNN, and he said the proud, I think he said the good boys wasn't racist. What, what were your thoughts on that? What? Well, I, I, you know, look, he's had to back off of that because yeah. he's just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, white nationalists are racist by very definition. Yeah. And, and, and it wasn't the first time that he said something along those lines. Um, you know, sometimes I think folks just say things before they really think, think things through. Yeah. Uh, and for somebody especially representing uh, the uh, state that has the kind of racial history that we have. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a sad state of affairs, but um, he thinks he's getting a lot of support for it. We'll see how it goes in three years. Wow. So what are some of the most important lessons you learned from your time as a senator that you believe are uh, accessible to individuals interested in public service? Well, I, I think you got to do, you, you've got to do it for the right reason. You've got to go into politics. You've got to go into public service for the right reason. And that's for other people, not you. Too many, I think too many people, especially I see a lot of younger folks who get really interested in politics and it's all, I want to be a senator. I want to be a governor. But they don't know what they want to do when they get there. They don't have that basis except for the office and the power and the prestige. And I tell people they should get involved in their communities get involved in, in things that they're passionate about and learn how important it is to be a public servant first and foremost. If you can be a public servant, you can be a good candidate and you can get that message across. And I think that's the most important thing, understanding that you are not there for yourself, you are there for others. And it, it is that servant's heart that I think most people need to be really good and effective leaders. Um, and quite frankly, I don't know if we're seeing enough of that right now, uh, as opposed to the just the egos of wanting to be in the Senate, wanting to be president, wanting to be um, a governor, wanting to be a certain office holder. Um, I, I want to see more and more public servants, more and more servants' hearts out there. Wow. So, sir, so serving as a senator come with his own set of challenges. Everybody know that. So how did you deal with those challenges? Well, every day we had to deal with them somehow, some way. <laughs> I had a very good staff that helped me. Yeah. Uh, they could deflect some challenges uh, when it came with uh, certain areas uh, that we were dealt, dealing with, with legislation, um, sometimes with the president. When, when President Trump was in, I tried to uh, work with his office as much as we could. But I think you've got to have a combination. You've really got to have a good team. And the first and, and most important thing is you've got to recognize the challenge. You've got to understand what the challenge is and why. And if you can understand where it's coming from, that goes back to what we were talking about, about meeting people and understanding them and going where they are. If you can understand and the, the challenges and where they're coming from, you can best deal with them and you can and get people. Again, a good staff, you can delegate a lot of work, just basic routine work that can deal with as, a lot more challenges than people think, but it's because they know them and they understand them. Wow. So since leaving office, what does Doug Jones do now? What, what do <laughs> That's a good question. I got people asking me that all the time, including my family. Um, <laughs> You know, I've got a I've, I've got a, a veritable buffet of things that I'm working on. Uh, you know, I'm affiliated with a law firm of Errant Fox Schiff in uh, Washington. 
um, doing some a, a lot of governmental relations work. We do strategies. I don't lobby. I'm not a registered lobbyist, but I do help with some strategy. I do help advise clients in a legal perspective, both domestically and internationally. Um, I've, I'm, I work, I'm a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, mm-hmm. where we're working on democracy projects and, and racial equality projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still keeping my hand involved in politics, working to try to help um, fix the Democratic Party in Alabama, to try to help the Biden campaign, to try to help get some of my former colleagues reelected. So I have an awful lot going on that keeps me pretty busy. So... What is ne- what's next for Doug? Jones? <laughs> what, what do you, next? you know, I don't know what's next for for Doug Jones. We, we'll see. Um, I've been really blessed with my career, um, and I don't know what the next step will be. We'll we'll just see. You know, sometimes you just can't always plan. Doors okay. are open, and if they open, you got to make a decision whether to step through them or wait for a different door. So I think some there's some more doors that's going to open down the road for me, and I'll just see what they are and whether or not I want to step through them and at some point start stepping back. <laughs> so let everybody know you can be reached on social media. Oh, yeah. I'm at, at Doug Jones on uh, <laughs> the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, uh, <laughs> X. That's That's where I do most of my thing. I'm on, you know, I own threads and I do a little bit of, I used to do a little bit of Instagram at Doug Jones Bama, but it's mainly through uh, Twitter and X that I do at, at Doug Jones. Wow. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank so, you. It's been my pleasure. Jay Walker Show. We out. Everybody, welcome back to the Jay Walker Show. Today, I am sitting with Madam D.A. of Jefferson County, District Attorney Lanise Washington of the Best McCutoff Division. Thanks for coming on, D.A. Thank you for having me, Jay. A little nice today, D.A. Thank you. Thank so, you. I want to get straight off the back because you recently just mentioned to me while we were setting up that you did a gun buyback program. So, what was that like? How, how was... Oh, wow. That was, it really was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I partnered with, um, there's a church in the Bessemer area um, called World Overcomers. Wow. And the pastor is Reverend Jonathan McPherson. And so he was kind of tasked with the funding aspect of it because we're a governmental office. So we don't have those exhaustive funds, you yeah. know, um, <laughs> that we can use for a gun buyback. Um, any monies we get will have to come through grants and you have yeah. to kiss the ring and mother may I and all of that. So um, he was tasked with appealing to the faith community um, to get the funds to finance this event. And I partnered uh, my office because all of my investigators, I have uh, five district attorney um, DA investigators, and all five of them participated and were kind of like the the hitmen of leading officers to make sure everything went smoothly. Uh, we partnered with Jefferson County Sheriff's Office as well as Bessemer Police Department. And um, we had it on the outside of the property at the Bessemer Civic Center. Wow. And it was a, a really good event. We wow. um, collected over 120 guns. That's amazing. So with that means, that's amazing, 120 guns. Uh, yes. So what do you think 
why, so why do you think people are, I don't, don't want to say scared, or why do you think people are nervous to attend or give guns to a gun buyback program? Well, a lot of people would probably think that it's a setup. <laughs> you want me to bring this gun in or I may have an outstanding warrant and, you, you know, you're really targeting me and you it's a setup. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so that's a lot of it. Um, people don't trust the process, but we didn't ask names. Yeah. Um, you didn't give any identifica- uh, identification. You just gave your gun um, and we looked at it to determine what the value of it in according to our um, event um, it was fifty dollars if you kind of brought in inoperable guns. Mm-hmm. We have we even got a BB gun. Um, <laughs> no questions asked. We gave fifty dollars for that, and we did get um, a gun that was it was just visibly inoperable, like oh. maybe it had been in a fire or oh, wow. in water or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you couldn't even open the barrel, but um, we gave fifty dollars for that. Handguns and um, shotguns were. One hundred dollars. So automatic, um, fully semi-automatic firearms were two hundred dollars and ghost guns were two hundred. Wow. So as district attorney, how do you handle a fatal use of incident involving uh, the Jefferson County police? Um, Police involved shootings, you're Mm -hmm. asking? Um, I always try to be at the scene uh, whenever there is a police involved shooting. Mm -hmm. And most often, uh, whichever policing agency is involved, um, whether it be Bessemer uh, police Department or Jefferson County Sheriff's Office, um, there is another agency that investigates. Oh, wow. um, that's normally ALEA, um, Alabama Law Enforcement Agency. Oh, wow. And um, so they normally, you know, investigate those type cases. Um, thankfully, we've not had, we, we've had some officer-involved shootings, mm-hmm. but um, we've not had any convictions on, um, just say that the officer um, overstepped his boundaries and that he actually committed a criminal offense. Okay, so let me ask you this. So you're the district attorney for the Bessemer Division. Absolutely. So a lot of people don't know. So what is the difference between the Birmingham Division and the Bessemer Division? So I know it's it's some confusing <laughs> it's sometimes. Confusing sometimes. <laughs> um, there's a little smidget of Inslee. Mm-hmm. Uh, my jurisdiction goes from that point all the way to the Tuscaloosa line. Oh wow! Um, inclusive of areas of Hoover. Oh wow! Um, Lake Cyrus, Ross Bridge. Um, there's some housing developments off of Lake Shore behind there. Those um, are areas of the Bessemer Cutoff. There are even areas in Birmingham. Um, Midfield is a, is a city that has a portion that is Birmingham jurisdiction and a portion that is the Bessemer cutoff. Um, you have Roosevelt City, which is in Birmingham, but mm-hmm. Roosevelt City is um, that's a part of my jurisdiction, as well as areas like Dolomite, which are in Birmingham, but a part of my jurisdiction. Um, McDonald Chapel, and there is oh, yeah, a I'm list from, of others. Yes, I'm from so, yeah, McDonald's Chapel. Yeah, I got oh, family. Really? I got family okay, Mulga, Edgewater, oh, wow. all those areas. Um, those are my <laughs> jurisdiction: Hueytown, Pleasant Grove, Fairfield, um, Bessemer, of course. As I was saying about Hoover, Hoover is so large um, that you have Shelby County portion, you have Jefferson County portion. Oh, yeah. So within Hoover, you have three district attorneys. Oh, wow. You have the Shelby County DA, um, which is Matt Casey. You have Birmingham, Jefferson County Birmingham DA, um, Danny Carr. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have myself, wow. um, Lenise Washington, for the best cutoff. 
So is it pressure being a, well, I know it is pressure being a district attorney. So how, how does that affect you mentally? Because, you know, you have all these different cases, you have all these different, all this stuff going on at once. So how does that affect you mentally as a district attorney? I pray a lot. Wow. <laughs> I, I do. Um, because I know when I step outside my doors, my day is going to be jammed with different things. Um, being the first black woman in Jefferson County in the, in the state right of Alabama, Alabama. Yes. Um, to be district attorney, um, it is I'm, I'm grateful, um, but it is also a little difficult. It, it, it took some time, especially in the beginning, to um, even the even the law enforcement officers that I already knew from the past, from mm -hmm. um, when I was an assistant DA for 10 years, wow. um, they were really uh, reluctant, I guess, to have a female uh, with a place at the table. Wow. So um, I enjoy having those um, facial expressions, especially <laughs> when I started. Uh, they didn't know what to expect from me. Yeah. Most men would look at a woman in law enforcement and think weak, um, it just, you know, like a mother hen type. Yeah. But I saw a community. I saw a community that need help. I saw my vision as to what I wanted my community to look like, um, as well as making it safe and prosecuting those cases, those people who commit those heinous crimes mm -hmm. um, and letting them know uh, that you, you will not be able to do that in the Bessemer cutoff and get wow. away with it. Wow. So is it hard? Getting the, the community and the, the police to get along because, you know, like some people, I'm scared. I don't want the police around me. I don't, you know, I don't. The culture now is um, snitches get stitches, yeah. <laughs> um, unfortunately. And um, we have, we don't have a bad in, investment jurisdiction. Um, our chief is right now Mike Wood. And prior to Mike Wood was um, Mike Roper. Yeah. Chief and Roper. Chief Roper, yes. <laughs> And uh, we didn't have that problem so much between the community and the police and, and having friction or, wow. um, but they still didn't talk. Wow. When uh, things happen in the community, um, people still don't talk, but they expect the police to do things that the police need the community's assistance in, um, you know, in investigating cases and um, collecting evidence. And people don't want to be involved because of the dangerous and the gun violence, the culture that we're in now. Wow. So would you would you support an option to make uh, low level drug offenses a misdemeanor instead of a felony? Well, we have a misdemeanor um, possession of marijuana, um, second degree, which is basically personal use. You may have a joint or uh, a blunt or something like that. Uh, that's personal use. And the first time that you are convicted of that charge is a misdemeanor. Um, the second time um, in Alabama, it becomes a felony. Oh, wow. Um, so in terms of now, there are charges where you bring in trafficking amount of marijuana. Yeah. Um, and that's different. That's quite different. That's different. Um, but misdemeanor marijuana, there are so many cases that um, during covid um, during COVID, we had a lot of downtime yeah. because my office did not close. We were not active in court. The judges were not coming to court. A lot of things were done during Zoom. Uh, COVID taught us a whole lot of innovative <laughs> ways to conduct yeah. business and to con uh, proceed with business as usual. 
So um, it, I told my assistant DAs that what we need to do is those old cases with just possession of marijuana, the, the ones that are misdemeanors, um, if there are drug cases that were never sent to Alabama Department of Forensic Science for testing, um, if there were cases that were so many years old, um, we were dismissing them. Wow. Because that holds up people lives. It does. That, you know, you have this charge hanging, looming over your head. And um, oftentimes, as as people of color, um, prospective employers will use that against you. Like, oh, man, I would hire you, but you have this pending marijuana charge. Yep. I wish I could help you. Um, but then there are others who does not have as much melanin in their skin. Um, they are forgiven. And a lot of times they just go under the broom. Right? Yeah. The they, they, they go to cor- corporate letter all the way to vice president. <laughs> <laughs> So what are your office's policies regarding plea bargaining and drug uh, offense cases? We have courts, diversion courts. Um, You have the drug court. Um, You um, when you complete drug court, then you can have that case dismissed. You pay court costs and have that case dismissed. Um, And then after then you can have it expunged. Um, We have those cases. uh, I mean, I'm sorry, those programs. And a lot of times if certain cases become, um, I become familiar with them. Um, I just, I look at it and if it's a college student and that college student was um, charged with possession of marijuana, a small amount, and, um, and, you know, they have a good, you know, path, a a successful path ahead, I dismiss it. I dismiss it. Um, and I'm now I want people to understand that you have to be accountable for oh, yeah. your behavior and for your acts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have to pay court costs. Yeah. And um, oftentimes in drug, you know, low, low level drug cases, they are more um, damaging for people of color, yeah. black and brown people than any anybody else. They have um, collateral consequences such as on the FAFSA. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, it's been a long time, but I think the first page of the FAFSA um, application, it asks whether you've been arrested or um, convicted of marijuana or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when you have certain crimes, then FAFSA is not going to fund you. Um, If you try to get into public housing, Um, It would be a barrier of you getting into public housing. So there are a number of things that um, affect the the collateral damages from a small conviction of low level marijuana. Um, It affects us. And and really, you don't see a decrease in the use of it. So I don't see um, a conviction of marijuana being something that um, is... um, it's something that's changing our neighborhood, something that is promoting safety. It seems now that more people are using it <laughs> than ever before for yeah. whatever reason, medicinal Medical, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it does not um, change our community for the better. Wow. So what are your policies regarding children in, in adult court? Again, uh, the gun violence. And, you know, every young Black male almost think that in order to um, survive in this environment, in this current environment, in this current culture, they have to carry. Um, And some of them do it just for 
protection. Um, and then some of them do it because they're a part of illegal activity or they're a part of a gang. So um, in terms of when they commit heinous crimes such as murder, mm-hmm. um, there is a process. Um, if you are 15, um, 16 years old, mm-hmm. then you will. we have to file, a. if the case is going to be considered an adult court, mm-hmm. then a motion for a transfer will wow. have to be done. Um, and sometimes it, it just depends. Our, we have one family court judge, um, Judge Pringle. And the thing I like about Judge Pringle is that she's going to look at each case to see our all the background issues about this defendant. We, we look to the um, victim. The victim is always, you know, we're always going to look out for the victim. Um, but look at the background of that defendant to determine whether a transfer to adult court would be something um, that would be more harmful because the whole point is to rehabilitate and to and it's punitive. So um, she looks at it from both angles. Wow. So I touched on the gun. So earlier this year, January of this year, actually, our governor, Kay Ivey, mm-hmm. uh, she passed a bill that you don't have to have a permit to carry. So I want to ask you this. What are your thoughts on that bill that was been passed? Because now I, I'm i walking around the street and I see dudes. I yeah. know good and well they ain't got no permit to carry no gun. They walk around with guns longer than this. Mark. So <laughs> yes, yes. So what, what are your opinions on that? What are your thoughts on that? And. Another question I want to ask with that question is, can they be arrested for that? For? <laughs> carrying those long guns or, or carrying those guns in general? It depends on what type. I mean, well, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, right now is um, is a dangerous time. My husband is law enforcement. And um, so there, when, when my husband leaves to go to work, I want him to come back home. But thank goodness he's been um, law enforcement so long, he's no longer on patrol. But it's dangerous for law enforcement officers. Um, You know, you really can't ask, you know, uh, do you have a gun in the car? Um, Can I search your car? And um, if a person have a gun, you just can't. A lot of times officer would ask them about a gun for officer safety. Mm -hmm. But then you will get people to say, well, you know, you're violating my constitutional rights. You know, I have a constitutional right to have this gun and you not ask any questions. But on the flip side of that, you um, have had so many incidents. Thank God not hear so much of officers pulling people over for driving violations and people with guns. You know, you walk up to the car, even if they see a gun, you know, there there's only so far that you can go. It's that fine line of um People can uh, would say you're violate violating my constitutional rights, and you know a lot of people call it constitutional carry. Well, the Second Amendment has always allowed you to carry guns, but there's a a right now we need to make sure that we we do it in a a safe manner, um, a reasonable manner. And so because you have permitless carry, people just feel, you know, they feel brazen enough to just walk around um, unless now different places, private um, businesses, they can say, hey, you can't come in here with yeah, a gun. Yeah. 
And they have to respect that. You know, when the law first changed, you know, they thought that they could still walk into Walmart. And if someone says you can't bring that gun in there and they want to challenge them about their constitutional rights. But that is a privilege to go to Walmart, to go to these private businesses. It's a privilege. And so if someone um, uh, takes away that privilege and deny your access because you are not in compliance with their rules, then you have to go or you be trespassing. Wow. So I'm, I'm glad you said that because some actually this. So I know before you went in the courthouse, you couldn't have a gun. So it's still like that. You can't go in the courthouse. You can't have no gun. No, they, you can't go have a gun in the courthouse. <laughs> I was that's curious. Probably, no, that's probably the worst place. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's too dangerous, uh, especially in this climate. Yeah. Uh, people oh, get yeah. mad with their attorneys. You see these court shows. Yeah. Um, <laughs> people get mad with the attorneys, with the judge, with the, you know, DAs. And um, yeah, the, you that could be. Yeah, that's not the best idea. No, so it's not. If you see this, do not go in the court with no gun. That's Please the don't. last place you need to go. <laughs> you, you will be arrested if you don't take that gun out. <laughs> <laughs> so, what has been your proudest moment or your proudest achievement as a process as a, a prosecutor as an attorney? Well, you know, um, Jay, when I was younger, um, I came from very meager beginnings. Uh, my mom had a sixth grade education, my dad an eighth grade education. Wow. So I'm the path that I took was one of choice. And um, that's why I'm so big on when people commit crimes and they say, well, it was a mistake. No, it was a mistake when you got arrested. Yeah. It was a choice to do what you did. Yeah. My mother could not tell me how to work a, a math problem or how to uh, pronounce words or anything like that. But she would always tell me, Nisi, you're going to college. Yeah. You're going to be a nurse or you're going to be a school teacher. <laughs> and I didn't like either of those careers. Yeah. <laughs> and when I told my mom younger that I wanted to be a lawyer, she, she said, we don't have the money for that. Wow. You know, so her because of her level of life experience, she couldn't see that far. Yeah. Um, but I always wanted to be a lawyer. So um, once I got through four years of college, I attended Miles Law School. I worked full time in the day, went to school at night, um, graduated cum laude. Um, the, be- the big thing after then was passing that bar exam. And I just recall sitting looking at the Alabama Supreme Court justices and I'm sitting there with everyone else who had passed a bar. And I'm thinking, now, what do I do? What do I do now? Yeah. When I was little, I wanted to be a lawyer. I knew I had to go to high school. I knew I had to go to college. I've done all that. I've now passed the bar. What do I do now? Yeah. <laughs> um, but but that was one of the most proudest moments. And I'm glad that my mother was here to see me past the bar, she was here to see me uh, become one of the assistant DAs that I now serve as the elected DA. I was there for eight years. Um, So I'm I'm glad that she got a chance to see those proud moments. Once I became district attorney and my administration started, one of the two things that I can think that I'm most proud of, really three, I can name a lot of things, (laughs) (laughs) but um, I started the um, Conviction Integrity Unit where uh, people with wrongful, um, who say, you know, say they were wrongfully convicted, Mm -hmm. um, they apply to have their cases reviewed. Wow. And um, so I started that. I also started the Operation Python, which is the very first task force formed by um, a DA. Mm -hmm. And that was a a successful operation in three months. And it was um, 
combination of um, state, federal, um, local law enforcement working together. Um, and we had those targeted individuals who were just wreaking havoc in the Bessemer cutoff and even some in, in Birmingham. And we did the doggone thing wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, for three months. And there were quite a bit of um, people that guns were taken off the street, a number of guns, um, drugs. Wow. And um, and people could could sleep a little safer, a little bit more sound for a little while. Wow. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of voting and I love, you know, so yes. the, the 20, 2024 election coming up. Can you explain to our viewers, because we have, a, you know, younger viewers. Yes. Can you explain to our viewers the importance of getting out to vote and that their voice is actually heard? I'm going to look at the camera for this one. <laughs> Please, young people, if you don't like the way our our government system is now, Often you'll say, well, you know, they're going to do what they want to do. That is only correct if you don't use your voice to go out and vote. There are so many people that lost their lives for just fighting for our right to to be people, to be citizens, to be individuals. Um, And we have that now. I'm standing on the shoulders of so many because they went out and fought for us to have the right to vote. And for us to have um, adequate education, education like the others, um, employment like others. So go out and vote. If you want change, you have to make change from the inside in and not the outside in. Be a part of the system. Know that you have a voice. And if you want your life to improve, uh, please be a part of voting. That is your God-given right. So please go out to vote. Please know who your candidates are. Read for yourself. That little digital device that you have is called a cell phone or an iPad. Please use that to look up those candidates so that you will uh, make the candidate choose and uh, vote for the candidate of your choice. Thank you. So let's talk about the different units inside your office, the different departments inside your office? Well, when I came in um, during my first part of the administration, I came in in 2017, uh, we did not have a uh, victim service unit. Mm -hmm. When I served as one of the assistant DAs for eight years, um, I had a bird's eye view then of the things that, you know, how the office was ran. And one of the things that I noticed was, you know, No one asks to be a victim. No one raises their hand and say, you know, I want to be a part of that club. So when you have people who have lost their husbands, sons or loved one, um, they don't know the process. They don't know the court system. They don't know that district court is not a court where you determine whether a person is innocent or guilty is a probable cause court is a court where it um, is determined whether there's enough probable cause um, that this person committed this crime against your relative. um, And then it goes to a grand jury from the grand jury. It goes to circuit court. No one, unless you're, you're um, gone to college or you've been around law enforcement, you wouldn't know that. So, um, and a lot of times when people have lost their loved ones to, to violent crime, um, there is a lot of emotion. So I, it was important to me 
to have a victim service unit, someone who would navigate people, the victims, through the court system. Mm-hmm. Um, when they go to court from hearings to trials, they sit right there. Wow. Um, if they need tissue, they're there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they need to talk, to just call and say, hey, when is our court date? Mm-hmm. Those are the individuals that represent wow. my office. And I'm, um, I'm very passionate about that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, you know, my policy that when we have charges of um, capital murder mm-hmm. that my um, my assistant DAs as well as my victim service officers they let me know um, those families that are at that point that we're in circuit court and we're at the point of we have to give the judge notice as to whether we're seeking the death penalty or not and I often meet with the family and every every family that um, has a, a charge of this had a loved one that was killed and you know with the defendant charged with capital murder i let them know what the difference is between um death penalty mm-hmm. or life without wow. and the different uh procedures that go with it and uh, i meet with every family in my office wow so if you don't mind me asking what is the difference for people that don't know what is the difference between between death penalty and life without when you have a trial, it's, it's a bifurcated trial because um, with with if you're going for the death penalty, once a person is found guilty, unanimously found guilty by the jury, then there has to be another process um, when you're seeking a death penalty or not um, where they're sentencing. It's the sentencing phase. Mm-hmm. And often in that phase, you have the defense attorney who wants to give mitigating circumstances as to why their client should not you know, um, get life or mm-hmm. why their client sh- well, should not get the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means that that family, and it doesn't happen right after the trial. Wow. For death penalty uh, phase, it doesn't happen right after the trial because mm-hmm. there has to be a report done. Um, and then you have to go back. And often families have to sit up and listen um, to the, de- the defense attorney once again, you know, glamorizing their uh, client, saying what a good person he or she is and, you know, how they had such a hard life. And because of that, you know, that is why they've chosen this path and that they should not uh, be subject to the death penalty. Um, so you're, the family has to go through that emotion. And then in death penalty cases, it's strict scrutiny. So when people go to prison awaiting the time for the death um, phase of it, mm-hmm. they have nothing to do but do motions. Wow. You know, so anytime there is a motion filed in the court system for however many years it takes for them to get to the point of um, the death sentence of the actual um, execution day, mm-hmm. um, that family, you know, they may go along and things are getting better. Um, they're getting adjusted to the loss of their loved one, but they're going to get that notice and they're going to have to go to court. Wow. Um, life without means exactly what it says. <laughs> life without the possibility of parole. Wow. Um, the only thing that a family and I always tell the families this that is that. I know that you miss your loved one, and I wish I had the authority, the power to give you back your loved one. But the only thing we can give you is justice. So um, and I just explains to them what that looked like in a practical sense. Um, in terms of life without, that person will have to be in prison for the rest of their lives to face whatever that they did. Wow. Um, death penalty 
there's really no closure. There's really no real closure. There's not. Don't allow uh, people to get off with the death penalty. Wow. Um, and so th- there's there's so many different things. We we talk to the family and um, and in in the process. And I, I go back talking about mitigating, um, trying to get uh, mitigating evidence. The defense attorney they find experts, mm-hmm. mitigating es- experts, and there are not that many. In wow. the state of Alabama. Mm-hmm. So you may have to wait for a while to, for that second phase of it, you know, to have, you know, f- to find a mitigating expert to come and speak on behalf of the defendant and all of that. But when you have a trial and you're not seeking the death penalty, mm-hmm. then um, th- that's it. It's like, we you know, once that guilty verdict ca- comes in, that's life without. Wow. So how the how the juries how the jurors how they selected so they go through is it a process or do you select them or no there's um and and j- again juries are it, it, you know today's climate people don't want to sometimes sit in judgment when they know a person is looking at death yeah <laughs> um, one of the questions during our voir dire um, that is once a jury um, we've chosen those people. There's a, a portion that we um, go through for dire where you ask questions. You ask, do you have a problem sitting in judgment of someone else? Um, do you have a problem with the death penalty? All of those things, you ask those questions that may affect their way of thinking um, and how they will determine whether this person is is guilty or not. Um, so. It depends on which direction you're going. If you're um, wanting life without you, you know, you're asking people who could not sit in judgment of anybody, yeah. <laughs> you know, who could who could not sit in judgment if a person is is um, um, looking at death and is is easier for a jury to make a verdict when they know that they're not looking um, to put someone to death. Now, that's one of the things, but I mentioned Vordier, and that is one of the ways that, you know, we we only have so many strikes. The state has so many strikes, and so does defense. And at the end of that, you just hope that you've got your best jury panel because you can't strike or have those persons removed, uh, everybody. So you have to choose the best. So what do you think is the most important thing for defense to know about the, the justice system? For defendants to know, mm-hmm. well, for one, it should be balanced. Um, I, you know, people, they they kind of scorn and look at prosecutors, especially black people as prosecutors. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, you're against us. You're against the system. And, oh, yeah. you know, you, you put black people in jail. Oh, yeah. That's not true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they come to us. After they've made a decision to commit yes. a crime. Yes. So we don't get to them first. They make that decision. They're they're arrested by law enforcement. Then they come to court. Yes. And there are laws that have been put in place. The rules um, are made to be followed, not broken. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, we we are sworn um, we to uphold the law. We took an oath. Um, Danny Carr and I, we took an oath to uphold the law. Wow. And that's what we do. But we also have um, discretionary power. Yeah. And those are some areas that you know, we can do. We can use our discretionary authority to do or not to do some things yeah. still within reason and still within the boundaries of the law. Wow. 
So let me ask you this. So as a DA, so our, for example, our um, vice president, Kamala Harris, she was a former DA. Yes. And when she got elected, it was all of this trouble about how she arrested black people and put put black men in jail, did blah, 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 blah. So do you feel as if there is a, 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 a not a balance between, let's say, a white, if it was a white DA or a black DA? So do you feel like it's, let's say you, um, you threw a black man in jail, but if it was a white DA, they wouldn't say the same thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, before my administration, of course, like I said, I'm the first black woman um, to hold that seat. And Danny Carr made history as being the first black male in Jefferson County. Mm-hmm. Um, out of 42 DAs, you only have three of color. Wow. You only have three of color. Um, and currently that is Robert Turner. I'm serving in the black belt in the Selma area. Um, and you have myself and you have Danny Carr. Wow. So, um, is you know, I'm under more scrutiny. Yeah, than anybody <laughs> than, than anyone, anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, thankfully, I'm serving my second term. So, um, and each term is six years. So apparently, I, I try to you know, right. <laughs> I try to do what's right, and I, yeah. I try to be transparent, um, and, and let the community know that you know whether you like it or not is going to be fair um is is not about um making it easier for black people it's just making it a level playing ground and um that's what we are here for to just to give the community um second chances i believe in second chances we we had a second chance hiring there recently um it was for those people who have marred backgrounds who've been in Mm -hmm. um had a brush with the law um, give them an opportunity to come face to face with prospective employers. Wow. When the employers come, they know that the majority of the people that are going to attend are people who have um, criminal backgrounds. Yeah. And so it gives them an opportunity to come face to face because everything's automated now. Yeah. Um, when you apply for a job, you submit a resume and you upload it in a computer you know, and so that person, you know, print your resume off and they're they're reading about you, but it doesn't tell the full story about you. You may have a position that's available and um, you have a, a application from someone who has um, a high school diploma um, and maybe one year of college that may have had um, a misdemeanor charge um, of possession of marijuana. Yeah. And then you have this college student. Um, who was at, graduated the top of their class, done so well, but what you don't know is that they have a, a, a very nasty disposition. Um, so, and you did know that this person who submitted the first resume I was speaking of actually want a chance to be able to be a productive citizen in the community, just need a chance to prove him or herself. You can't get that from reading a resume. So that gives them a chance to come face to face with um, employers. Um, and also we had resources there for expungements, for um, information about VA um, voter application, uh, restore the vote. People who um, are, have been convicted and think that a lot of people can still vote and have certain misdemeanor convictions, um, they can still vote and they don't know it. Yeah. So um, it, it was a great affair. Um, we had over 115 people wow. that came and over half of those people received jobs. Wow. So um, that's that's life changing. So this is what I want to say. I, I, I truly and I watch you. I've watched for the last six years. I've watched you. One thing about you, you're in the community. 
you're not like I'm not gonna say no names, but you're not like people. You in Danny Carr? Y'all are in the community. Y'all yes. y'all are having these buyback programs. Y'all are having these events. Y'all are having, and that's something I really appreciate because you have these people that get an authority and power, there and they say they're gonna do something. They go sit in the office, don't come out till it's election time or year before election time. So I really want to give you your flowers. Thank I you. Really appreciate you. Thank you. I really appreciate you. Well, I, you know, I always say is is not about status; it's about service. Yeah. Um. When I um, first began my administration in the office, when I was doing so many things, the uh, Operation Python and Conviction Integrity, and every year we have a candlelight vigil where during the week of National Crime Rights Victims um, Week, we have a program where people who have lost their lives to gun violence or any type of violence, um, they are recognized their family members are there and we empower them with information so that they can, you know, make better choices going forward. And just to let them know that, you know, there are resources out there to help them in, in their day to day life and, and problems. Um, and that that has been such a huge impact in the community. I had no idea. But my husband used to fuss at me and say, you know, you don't ever go on the news. You don't ever. You just work, 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 work. No one is going to know, you know, yeah. the things that you do, the changes that you make. Um, and I and I told him it's not about status. It's about service. Yes. But all at the same time, I use media to let people know what what is going on. Wow. You know, the the things that are going on in our community, the changes that are being made, the impact of the changes. And um, it's important to me that when. I know I'm here for a reason and only for a season. Yeah. So um, I am definitely going to work in my season. I know I won't be here forever, but I want to make a strong impact and change lives while I'm here. And while I have the ability to do things to make people's lives better, to improve their quality of life. Wow. So I want to thank you so much for coming on. Today. Thank you Take for time having me. Take your busy schedule come on today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's the Jay Walker Show. I've had Lanice Washington, Madam D.A., <laughs> Bedham DA Jefferson County Bessma Division I had to correct myself Because at the first And early when we first started I said Bessma Cutoff It's Bessma Division <laughs> DA Madam DA Lanise Washington y'all. Thank you so much for coming on No thank you for having me Jeff. Yes ma'am Appreciate it <laughs>
And I'll tell you, I went to sleep that night. I woke up the next morning to my daughter crying in her bedroom. She was 16 years old at the time. And it really jarred me. And, you know, I know I know a lot of parents wake up to their kids crying uh, for a lot of reasons. And, and, and I recognize that for me, that was a it was a really uh, a, a tough moment. And we called my 18 year old daughter, who was actually a freshman in college at that time in her dorm room. And she, too, was in tears. And I sat at the breakfast table that next morning, Jay, and I promised them that I would do something. And I did. But I want to go backwards a little bit about the why. And you asked about that. You know, I, I lost my my father in the Vietnam War. Um, his name was Artie. He grew up very poor in St. Paul, Minnesota, had no money for college. So he earned an ROTC scholarship uh, to go to the University of Minnesota. And right before I was born, he was deployed to Vietnam as a captain in the army. Wow. And, um, and th- three days after the American moon landing, and I, it actually gives me great joy to know that my dad knew that America landed on the moon. Uh, he was killed uh, in a helicopter crash in Lake Vietnam. I never, never had a chance to meet me. We only through audio tapes where I was a little baby and uh, would goo goo gaga into the tape recorder. And uh, my mom would send tapes back and forth. The beautiful thing is I found those tapes. My mom gave them to me and I have them now on my phone digitized. I get to hear my dad's voice from 1969 in Vietnam. But I, I was, my mom was 24 and widowed. Um, I had no dad. We lived with my great grandparents in St. Paul, Minnesota for the first two and a half, three years of my life. And then when I was about three, my, my mom remarried a, an amazing father, uh, Eddie Phillips, who adopted me. And he brought me into an extraordinary family um, of, uh, of great values, uh, of, a, of a wonderful family business. Um, they were loving, they were nurturing, very successful. And I've lived on both sides of advantage. You know, I, I started my life with um, very little privilege and a, a tragedy. And by just a twist of fate, you know, literally just good luck. I was adopted wow. into a family of extraordinary privilege. And so in 2016, when my daughters were in tears, and frankly, I'd spent my whole life trying to rectify uh, the ills of the past, um, Minneapolis, a place that was is my home and from where I come, is a place that in the 1940s was one of the most anti-Semitic and also racist cities in America. And my hero was always Hubert Humphrey. Uh, who I think is underappreciated both in the Jewish and black communities, because it was he who changed the Democratic Party in extraordinary ways. And in 1948, he appeared at the 1948 Democratic Convention in Philadelphia. And he was told by many that morning that if you make the remarks that you are planning to make, your career will be over before it starts. And he got in front of the Democratic Convention and he said it is time for the Democratic Party to get out of the shadow of states' rights and into the bright sunshine of human rights. And I don't think he's given a lot of credit for it, but I believe he helped literally ignite the civil rights movement. You know, a white guy from Minneapolis, Minnesota, you know, a Scandinavian white dude from South Dakota originally, and then Minneapolis uh, in his late twenties as a Minneapolis mayor gets in front of the democratic party. And by the way, Strom Thurmond and probably hundreds of delegates, they literally walked out of the arena that day. Wow. Because, because Hubert Humphrey said it's time for the Democratic Party to stop this nonsense. And you, you know the nonsense I'm talking about. Yeah. So 2016 comes and I thought, you know what, this is my time. You know, th- this is a country in which you can still stand up. You can still resist. You can still participate. And I'd raise my daughters to be participants, not observers. And I ran for Congress. And to m- make this long story short, I looked around and I thought, oh, no, I'm in trouble because <laughs> my district, my district had not 
been won by a Democrat since 1958. And the man who I ended up running against and beating had won by 14 points that night in 2016. But we did it, and I did it with invitation, not confrontation. I did it by bringing people together, not you know separating them and segregating them like so many politicians are doing. I did it with joy and optimism and um, uh, and hope, you know. And and we built a beautiful campaign of great people and all races, religions, and backgrounds, and even politics. And we won by 12 points. And um, it shows that when Americans really are kind to one another and they welcome one another and they want to listen to one another, anything is possible. And I became a member of Congress and that arc brought me to today, which means I sat in the House chamber on six. I was subject to the insurrection that our president at that time inspired against all of us. And I wasn't going to sit down this time when I know that President Biden, who's a man I admire, but I know he's going to lose this next election. The numbers are saying it. Voters are saying it. Uh, all of the all of the evidence is showing that he may be the only moderate Democrat that can lose to Donald Trump. He was the only one that could win in 2016. And he didn't want to pass the torch. Nobody who was better known uh, amongst Democrats chose to enter the race. And for the same reason in 2016 that I told my daughters I had to do something, I had to do it again because I cannot wow. stand to live in a country led by that man again who is unhinged, dangerous and a disaster for all of us. And that's why I'm running for president. Uh, and I'm so glad I did, because this is going to be a joyful journey and a hopeful journey and one that allows us to create the very change that I think our country is so, so hungry for. Wow. So did, did you find it, was it a difficult decision to, to sit back and say, I'm going to run against this man that I really admire, which is Joe Biden? Because, yeah. you know, you're a Democrat and like, uh, was it, how, how, how was that dissension process? What, what was that process like, the, the signing on? Well, yeah. Jay, you can imagine it's not when I took, I, it's not a yeah. decision I made easily. And, and I'll tell you yeah. very specifically, by the way, um, I, I was really focused on trying to encourage the president to pass the torch. I, I, he, had, he had made somewhat of an implicit promise, if you will, that he was going to be a transitional president, that he recognized there are a bunch of younger Democrats ready to take take that torch and lead us to a new, you know, a new century. And when he chose not to, uh, many of us were surprised. I'm sure you among them, because it was seemed yeah. like that was what he was yeah. planning to do. You know, he's a, he's a man who's, you know, in his eighties already and um, saved our country. I think, as I said, I think he was the only one that could have beaten Trump back in 2020. And I, I tried to thoughtfully say it's time to pass the torch. And when that didn't happen and I tried to encourage others to run and they didn't want to, um, it saddened me. I was surprised that there are people who I thought would be courageous right now and know that you know there's a big risk. They didn't do it. Yeah. And when I made the decision, finally, it was really based on a single conversation uh, with Steve Schmidt, of all people. Steve Schmidt, as you know, was John McCain's former campaign manager. Uh, with mm -hmm. the rise of Trump, he became an independent. Uh, and now he's been a Democrat for three years. And what he did in 2020 by setting up the Lincoln Project, he helped he helped Joe Biden beat Donald Trump by only 40,000 votes in a handful of states. President Biden called him after that election to say thank you. And Steve wow. Schmidt invited me on his podcast on October 11th, called me the next day and said, you know what? In 2020, I knew only Joe Biden could beat Donald Trump, which is why we started the Lincoln Project uh, and we helped him win. And he said in 2024, I'm calling to tell you that you're the one that can do this and need to. And if you do it, I will help you get started. And that's exactly what we did. We set up a presidential campaign in two weeks in mid-October 
I launched on October 27th in New Hampshire. Uh, I just filed in South Carolina yesterday. I'm heading down to South Carolina soon and now Alabama and Michigan and all the wonderful states in between. To not be demeaning of the president, I respect him, but to make a simple case for the future, uh, to present a way to lead our country that is different than any recent president has even tried. And what do I mean by that? To include, wow. to include people and perspectives and races and religions and backgrounds and geographies that ensure that every single American is represented in the White House, that, they have, that wow. everybody from every corner of this country knows that there is somebody there that is speaking to their president every day. I want to see the White House doors open the way that Abe Lincoln did. People can, yeah. could wait in line then, sit down at a desk with their president to, to say hello, to make a case, to ask for something, to share a dream or a challenge. And furthermore, I want to have dinners at the White House yeah. for people of all backgrounds in this country to come together, Democrats, Republicans, again, of all backgrounds, faiths, colors, to sit at a table with their president, casual in jeans, get to know each other, share what's on their minds, not just fancy dinners for the wealthy and well-to-do. But, but Jay, if we don't change how we uh, govern this country in a more thoughtful, inclusive, reasonable, common sense kind of way, we are at really grave risk. And that's why I run, I'm running. But to answer your question directly, no, it was not an easy decision because there are systems, there are people, there are institutions set up to prevent the very choices that I'm trying to give voters who are saying so desperately they would like to have in this next election. And it's, wow. has, it has come at great personal cost. But that's why we, that's what we do in America. you got to take a risk. you got to take the arrows. you got to take the punches. And I'm glad I'm doing it because I'm doing it for people who really need a voice in Washington. Wow. Now, speaking of Alabama. Yeah. Um, you got some big news regarding Alabama. Oh yeah, I do have some big news. I'm on the ballot. Wow! And you are the first. You're the first to know. We just got that wow. news. That's that, amazing. Gee, I think you know, and I think probably others listening might know that uh, that that's not an easy task, by the way. Uh, yeah, and I really want to give you your props because that just that just certifies so much more to your campaign and to you are a man of your. I've, I've done my research on you and your work as a congressman in Massachusetts. You are like amazing. Minnesota. Minnesota, I'm sorry about it. Yeah, that's right. I, Massachusetts, that's just another, Massachusetts is just another M word. It's not as cold there. That's the only difference. Yeah. <laughs> Congressman in Minnesota. And, and you and Doug Jones and like so many men, people in the Democratic Party, I admire because of your integrity and because of your honesty and work you have done in the community. And you totally 100% have my support here, the Jay Walker. So I tell you that. Oh, Jay, so I love, 2024. Thank you, man. Dean Phillips in Alabama. Can I give you? I'll give you a handshake. Oh, handshake! <laughs> Thank you. So Thank Alabama you. on I think it's March 25th. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Super Tuesday. Yeah. We have to get out and vote because yeah. I hate to say it, and you know, as you are 100 right. In 2020, Joe Biden was the only guy that could take Trump yeah. down. Yes, he was. But he's old, and no disrespect to Joe Biden, I no. respect him and Kamala. But he's older and he's not as strong. Well, I'll take that back. He's not as he's not what is he's not what it need what it needs to cut it. And what we have right here with Mr. Dean Phillips, this man don't play. He's about his business. Look him up. Do your research like I did. I when I reached out to him, I knew for a fact. Hey, I want this. This this is our next presidential, uh, Dean Phillips. So, Thank you, my friend. Let me ask you one more thing before we go. 
Yeah. Um, you've had success as a congressman with mm-hmm. you've, you've, you've your your background includes experience in Congress. What legislative achievements are you most proud of, and how do you, how do these accomplishments align with your presidential uh, aspirations? Sure. Uh, well, there've been a number. Uh, let me let me start by saying I'm the second most bipartisan member of the whole Congress, uh, the House, the Senate, all governors, according to the Common Ground Committee, because that to me is how we have to act. We have to respect one another. Again, no matter your backgrounds, where you come from, what you think, if we don't treat each other respectfully and work together and we think somehow we can all win, uh-uh. we're fighting each other, not fighting for each other. One of the first right. things I did in Congress, Jay, was something called DED, Deferred Enforced Departure. I've got a wonderful Liberian immigrant community in Minnesota, if you can believe that. Imagine coming from Liberia to the, to the tundra of the north in Minnesota, but a, a beautiful uh, community that literally adopted me during my first campaign. I felt like I'd become their family, they'd become mine. And they were at risk under the Trump administration of literally being deported. People who had lived in America for 25 years, had had kids, had started businesses, were at risk of being sent back to Liberia, a country that many of them had never even stepped foot in. And my first really important success was finding a way through a legislative um, a maneuver uh, to have Donald Trump sign, the president sign into law uh, a bill that protected them. And he did it. Wow. And I'm so, and, I, and it's a very underappreciated uh, success that uh, my team, by the way, not just me, but my team and I accomplished. Probably my second most important is something that I did with um, Chip Roy. Now, I'm the second most bipartisan member of Congress. Chip Roy is a arch conservative from Texas, probably the 430th most bipartisan member of the chamber, which only has the 435 members. But Chip and I are friends. I made a point to get to know him uh, during the worst of COVID. There was a program called the Paycheck Protection Program. It mm-hmm. sent money to small businesses to keep people employed, right? A very important program, but it did not work very well. So Chip and I wrote a bill together uh, called the Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act. And the 430th most bipartisan member of Congress and the second most bipartisan member, you know, a, a white Jewish guy from Minnesota of all places and the uh, a Texas cowboy, conservative down in uh, down in down in down in Texas, got together and wrote this bill, and D- Donald Trump signed it into law. We only had one person vote against it in the House of Representatives, and it saved probably thousands of businesses and many thousands more jobs. And that was an example of what is possible when you work together. Now, Jay, you wouldn't know that based on you know, uh, what I call the angertainment evening news. They don't talk about <laughs> the good things that happen. You know, they they don't talk about when. You know, when people are getting along or actually getting stuff done, all they want to talk about is failure and division, you know, racism, sexism, mean-spiritedness, obnoxiousness, wow. anti-Semitism, all the horrors that, by the way, are totally legitimate. But when, when, when our media only portrays misery, it starts taking a toll on people. And I just want to remind people that anything is possible. And this is my only invitation I want to make on your show Yes, would I love it if you'd vote for me? Because if you do, we're going to do this so differently and it's going to be a beautiful future uh, that people can't even dream of right now because it seems so far away. We're going to do it. But to do it, I can't do it alone. People got to vote, not just in a general election. People have to get out and vote in a primary. And if you want to shock the world, if you literally want to shock the world, if you're angry about the way things are going, if you are part of what I call the exhausted majority, people, people who are center right, center left, we're so sick and tired of politicians who've been in Washington for 30, 40, 50 years. If you yeah. want some change, 
I might be your guy. I would love it if you at least look into me. I'd love it if you'd meet me because I'd like to hear your story. And if you want to join my team, we call ourselves the Dean Team. We'd love to have you. Alabama is going to be really important to me. That's why I made it a point to get on the ballot. And if people believe in a different future, and if you think that we can do better, I promise you we will, and you'll be part of it. And I would ask for that chance uh, and your faith in me, because uh, if Donald Trump wins, which is what will happen if Joe Biden is the nominee, I'm afraid, uh, we're in for a really, really difficult uh, number of years ahead. And uh, as a father, as a friend, as an American, um, as a neighbor, uh, I want all of us to not just succeed, but thrive. And we've got a lot of change. Life is unaffordable. People have been mistreated for generations. We have inequities, structural inequities, income and wealth inequities. I know how to fix that. I've been in business. I reward people. All people need is a damn chance, man. You know, people yeah. simply need education, have a roof over their head, have health care available to them, have child care so they can get out and work, have job opportunities and the education that they can actually achieve them. And then people can take it from there. I know that. But if we're going to keep people you know, down, if we're not going to give them an opportunity, what the heck would we expect? And we've been doing it this way for way too long. I just want to try harder. I want to work better. And I cannot wait to bring a nice, bright future for everybody. Well, thank you so much, Congressman. I'm sorry for taking up so much time. Thank you so much for coming no, on the show today. And also, one, one more key point before we go, because I don't want yeah. Will to get at me. <laughs> <laughs> so can you please break down to people how important and big it is that you're on the ballot in Alabama, which is an yeah. all red state. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's, it's really important because this is the Democratic primary. Uh, if you want a choice other than the president, uh, there's only probably there might. I don't know. You know, if there's anybody else on the ballot right now, I don't know. If, exactly. uh, Nobody else. I think it's just it might just be me, uh, President Biden and, and me, Congressman Phillips. If that's the case, getting on it was really hard. And I wanted everybody to know this. Uh, I thought it was easy in America. If you want to run for office, that you just go sign up and you bring a name and maybe a, a, a little check to the uh, secretary of state. Uh, uh. They make hurdles. They build barriers. They make it so difficult. When I say they, both parties, the duopoly, I call them the political industrial complex, the institutions designed to actually promote democracy. I hate to tell you this. It's the truth, though, Jay. Uh, I've been discovering that they're trying to actually reduce democracy, reduce participation, wow. suppress candidacies, suppress debate, and in some cases, actually suppress the voters who are begging, begging for options. It was really it, it took a lot of it took a lot of hard work, a lot of sweat and tears to get on the ballot in, uh, in Alabama. And I really would ask that people consider coming out and voting. And by the way, if you shock, if Alabamans are willing to shock the country and shock the world, then we can start repairing it. And if you want to help me do that, I'd love to have you on the Dean team because we're going to bring some joy to a country, to neighborhoods, to states uh, that really need it right now. And I'd love it if you might consider that bright future instead of litigating this very, very upsetting past. Wow. And people don't understand Alabama, that will help a lot because Alabama is a huge state. So that will help a yeah. lot. So again, ladies and gentlemen, Representative Dean Phillips, a 2024 presidential candidate. And again, you have my full support and I'm totally endorsing you, Mr. Phillips. Oh my God. Well, I'm endorsing you then, Jay. Peace. <laughs> and keep the and keep the faith in the A. And as John Lewis said, Let's make some good trouble because, boy, if there was ever a time for it, my friend, it is right now. Now.
Thank you so much, Dean Phillips. It's the Jay Walker Show 2024 Presidential Candidate, Dean Phillips. Thanks, everybody. Come on. Do your thing, big daddy.